This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Ukrainian Questions Posed by Russian Invasion. I'm very glad that I can teach a class on Ukraine. I'm very glad that you all are here to at least try out this class on Ukraine. Let me just say a word about the way the class is going to work and see if you have any questions about that. And then I will jump into a kind of introductory lecture about what some of the major themes of the class will be. So this is a, this is a straightforward survey lecture class. We're going to cover a lot of, of uh, we're going to cover a lot of time. We're going to be focused on Ukraine, but not in the sense that we're trying to prove that Ukraine as it exists now had to exist, but rather we'll be concerned with the things which made it possible and the other kinds of entities which were important on the territory along the way. And more abstractly, we'll be concerned with the question of why this nation, why nations in general, how do you get from something, how do you get from nothing to something? Why are there nations in general? Or if there have to be nations, why the ones that we have to have, which is the ultimate thing which seems self-evident, like if you're produced in the given educational culture, then the existence of the educational system and the state that created it seems self-evident, but it's not really. Like that's the existence of the United States or of Ukraine or of Russia or any country is highly contingent and frankly, pretty darn unlikely. And so the burden of proof is really on us as historians to show how these things are possible as opposed to taking them for granted. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to just enter into some of the big questions <clears throat> that are raised by the moment that we are in now. So history is not about how everything has to be the way that it is now. Nevertheless, um, it, would be, it would be naive not to notice that the way that we start thinking about history has to do with the predicaments and the questions that are raised by the present moment. You can't get away from the present moment, as you might have noticed. It's very hard to get away from the present moment. Um, but what, what you can do is you can use the present moment to reflect, right, to, to reflect. And then when you've reflected, the history that you learn might make the present moment more comprehensible. So I'm not going to say that the purpose of this class is to make the Russian war against Ukraine make sense. What I am going to say, though, is that the war perhaps is an occasion for us to go back and understand this history. Some of the things which might seem mysterious, like how, how is a war like this possible, might seem less mysterious. Some of the claims that are made about the war um, might seem easier to dismiss or easier to understand once we have the history under, under our belts. So let me start with where we are. Where we are right now, um, it is what, the 31st of August or something like that? Where we are right now is that the Ukrainian armed forces are undertaking a limited offensive in the Kherson Oblast of Ukraine, which is right in the southern part of the country. Um, Kherson, it's an interesting name. If you if you think about it, it doesn't actually, if you, have, if you know anything about Slavic languages, it doesn't sound particularly Slavic, and that's because it's not. Um, Kherson was named after an older ancient Greek settlement on the Crimean Peninsula. Um, it was named by Catherine the Great when she founded, when she founded the city. 
Um, the, by the way, that ancient Greek city, um, which was also called Herson, is now, the ruins of it are now in a suburb of Sevastopol, which is another city name which you might be hearing of. Things are exploding there at the moment. Um, Sevastopol is part of the territory in the extreme south of Ukraine in Crimea, which was occupied by Russia in 2014. So these place names, which seem exotic and mysterious, point us back to a history which is actually durable and comprehensible. So um, the Greeks are the oldest documented inhabitants of Ukraine. I'm not going to say the oldest inhabitants because there are the Scythians and there are all kinds of other people who left other kinds of traces. But in terms of continuous documentation of presence, the Greeks have been there for the longest along with the Jews. So the Jews and the Greeks are the longest documented inhabitants of Ukraine, which suggests that familiar concepts of classical history, whether coming from a Greek side or coming from a Jewish side, are going to turn out to be useful in application to, to Ukraine. Um, the, the history of Ukraine, as we're going to see, um, is about an axis of South to north. Okay, I realize I'm now getting into geography and like heads are spinning already. North is like when you're looking at a map, it's the up one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> and south is the other way. Um, but but so, so when we think about people talk about Ukraine in terms of east and west, and I just want to say that's a very recent phenomenon. The axis on which early Ukrainian history is going to emerge, or the history of Kievan Rus, which is the first big documented polity in this region, is a north, it's a north-south axis. It has to do with Vikings, which is a major theme in European history, right? The Viking Age, which begins in the 8th century. It has to do with the encounter of the Vikings and the continuation of the Roman Empire, which is known as Byzantium, um, uh, uh, which is you know capital in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. Um, it, Kiev and Rus, our history, begins with an encounter of this major northern development and this major southern development, which meet in Kiev and set something off, which is in some way continuing. This something that is set off, we're going to be following for a thousand years. The, 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 the state which is founded, as I've said, is called Rus or Kievan Rus. We'll describe, I'll talk about why it's called Rus later on. It's very interesting. But the territories in question are also going to be governed by other entities like the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the biggest state in Europe for, for quite a long time, Poland, major, the major power of the region for quite a long time, the Ottoman Empire, which we cannot forget. And if I get through the middle of this class and I haven't talked enough about the Ottomans, I want you guys to call me on it, because the terror, like, the, the, there's this whole thing about Kiev and Rus, and, I'm, and like Putin talks about it, and Zelensky talks about it, and both Putin and Zelensky are named after the guy who was baptized, maybe, um, in order to found Kiev and Rus, who's called, who is called um, Voldemar, because of course he was a Viking and not a Russian or Ukrainian, because Russian and Ukraine didn't exist at the time. But, but the Viking who got baptized, who is called Voldemar, in 988, um, that name then becomes Volodymyr in Ukrainian and Vladimir in Russian, right? So that contemporary heads of state of these two countries are named after this figure who a thousand years ago maybe converted to, to, to Christianity. Um, but so there's this Kievan Rus business and we're going to follow Kievan Rus and it's 
fascinating, but we have to remember that the whole south of the territory that we're talking about was never actually part of Kievan Rus, right? So Putin is now making this war in Ukraine, and part of his logic, as I'm going to talk about, is that, Kiev, that Russia and Ukraine have always been one people because a Viking maybe got baptized a thousand years ago, which I want you guys to understand is not a persuasive historical argument, okay? If we get one thing out of this class, it's going to be that, like, if a dictator tells you a thousand years ago somebody got baptized, that doesn't mean your nation is the same as his nation. If we can, like, get through that, we'll have done a good job. Um, so at least for the first 15 minutes of class. But my point is that we cannot forget that these southern territories were not part of Kievan Rus at all. Where the fighting is happening now was not, it was part of the ancient Greek world. It was part of the Ottoman world for a long time, but it was not actually part of Kievan Rus. Southern Ukraine has a, has a different history and it is brought into this larger Ukrainian thing later on. Um, so let's, I'm just saying that because we have, to, we, have to, we have to mark the Ottoman Empire and we have to mark Islam. And in general, by the way, we have to mark Ukraine as a, as a major center, not just of Christian uh, history. Because when, we, when, you, when you focus on Kiev and the conversion to Christianity, then you're in this kind of Christian theological arc. You know, somebody maybe or maybe didn't get dunked in water and therefore it's Christian forever. But Ukraine is actually a center of Muslim and Jewish and Christian civilization. And this is one of the things which makes it interesting and of note. And in the ancient period, it was a center of, a, of what you could think of as a contest between those three monotheistic traditions to convert the pagans who lived there, which we'll get to in a later, in a later lecture. For now, though, um, what I want to make sure that we get to is this issue of how you get to a nation, okay? So that's gonna be one of our major themes. And I don't mean it teleologically, just to stress, I don't mean like why Ukraine had to be, because that's a terrible question. As soon as you're in the world of why a nation had to be, you've, you've, um, you've obliviated, you've eliminated, you've erased all human agency in the whole story, right? If I'm able to say right now, like from the pulpit, Ukraine had to exist, then we're removing everything which makes history interesting, right? The, the human choices along the way, the way people saw the circumstances they were in, what people thought was possible, what they thought they were doing, and what they sometimes even did, all that goes away. If I can say, oh, there had to be America, or there had to be Russia, or there had to be China, there didn't have to be any of these things. We can explain how they came into being, but we, what we can't say, and this is what Putin does, we can't say that it's predetermined. As soon as we say it's predetermined, this is no longer a history class. It's in some kind of, we're in some kind of exercise in you know, applied physics or something. Okay, but the bad, so there's a bad answer to why, you know, to where history comes from, which is that things had to be the way they are. And that bad answer is closely related to this war. Because Putin gave that bad answer in July of 2021 when he wrote an incredibly long, for a politician, not long for you guys, um, an incredibly long essay about what he called On the Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine. Um, and his, his bad answer is that things are the way they are because they had to be this way, basically. Right, um, Russia and Ukraine have always been together, and if they're not together, that's the result of alien, non-historical forces. This is really important, by the way, because when a tyrant makes an argument about how history has to be, then some of the forces that are actually resident in history get then get classified as being ahistorical or non-historical or exotic or alien. Right. So in so in, in Putin's telling of the story, 
all the Lithuanian stuff and all of the Polish stuff and all of the Jewish stuff for that matter, all the things which aren't about Christianity or Russia are now suddenly exotic, alien, foreign. They're not really history. They're the things that have to be removed so that history can go the way that it's supposed to go. And that is precisely a rationale for war. In fact, it is the rationale for this war, because the argument for this war is that Ukrainians don't know who they really are because they've been polluted by all this Polish stuff or Lithuanian stuff or Habsburg stuff or maybe more later, maybe laterally Ukrainian European Union stuff or American stuff. So they don't. So you have to peel away all this artificial things to get down to who they really are, and they may not know who they really are, and that's that's tragic. And we have to apply enough violence so that they can understand who they really are, right? And once you're in that way of seeing things, then of course the war makes perfect sense to you, right? And so when so the, so the way that history is presented has an integral connection with the decision to make a war, and also to the way that a war seems to make sense while it's going on, right? While it's going on to the people who are taking part of it. So um, <clears throat> the point is though that is, is not that we're going to start with this bad history because it's the right kind of history. The, the point is that the bad history, or what I would prefer to call the myth or the political memory, gives us an occasion um, to see how history might actually have been. It's a kind of, the bad history is a kind of, of invitation to, to what might actually be more, more interesting. Okay, so um, when, when, what's wrong with the idea? Let me just open this up to you guys very quickly. What's wrong with, this is kind of a trick question, I'm sorry. What's, what's wrong with a, a, an essay which is titled On the Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine? Go for it. There is no historical unity of Russia. Okay, that's all right. I'm, I'll give you that, but I'm looking for, yes, okay. Why not? I mean, why not? Because you don't think so? Um, no, I think it's been forced. The, the unity has been forced. Okay. Okay, all right. I'm going for something more fundamental. Yeah? Uh, Russia and Ukraine might not have existed in the way we talked about them. Good. Okay, that's good. Um, that's good. Um, Russia and Ukraine as nations definitely didn't exist in the year 988, right? The nation is a modern historical construct characterized by the notion that <clears throat> You, you feel a kind of solidarity with people you don't know. That's Benedict Anderson, Imagine Community. It's a good argument um, that you, you, um, you, you, somebody else is American or Ukrainian or Chinese, and you think you have something in common with them even though you don't know them personally. That's the nation. The nation also involves a certain, at least a certain notion of equality. We may not be equal in every ways, but I'm not more American than you are, right? If you're American, you know we're at least in, in the, at least notionally we're equal as as members of a nation, right? Um, that does not exist in the ancient world. It doesn't exist in the medieval world. So then, so you, that's a good one. Now, can we go even deeper than that? All right, I'm gonna have to answer my own trick question. Yeah, go for it. Um, this might be a long shot, but like the statement itself is inherently That's kind of where, I mean, I'm going to give you like extra credit points for that because I, I, that's, I think, 
Um, I think you're right, and I think like the it's the the what I'm aiming for is the actual language of the statement, like the way that the on the historical unity of Russia and Ukraine plays certain plays a certain trick. The trick is that if I begin a title with on, you the thing that it, that, 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 that that's that's there is supposed to be real, right? So if if the title is on the historical unity of Russia and Ukraine, the trick is that. Well, since it's on this, that thing must exist, right? If I write a book which says on, you know, on quick, quick chess strategies to defeat Gary Kasparov, then it's like that thing must exist, right? Even though it, do it doesn't exist, right? But if I say on this thing, then it exists. And so that kind of language, the kind of, the kind of implicit assertion of existence is non-historical language it's the language of legend the language of myth it's the it's tricky language which gets you thinking in terms of categories of eternity categories of you know of durability categories of categories which isn't changed what things which don't change which leads you to where um to where putin is which his idea um that that something that some things are as he says predetermined right which is a very which is a very strong word his idea is that because there was a baptism in kiev in 988 the rest of it is predetermined um, and anything which doesn't go the way it's supposed to go is somehow exotic or foreign and has to be suppressed. And then historical unity. I mean, I'm going to make your point a little bit more strongly. It's not just that Russia and Ukraine, there's no such thing as historical unity, right? History is not about unity. History is about, okay, I'm going to throw this one open. What's history about in two words? You can have two. You have three if one of them is an and. War and peace. I guess I, that's what I deserve for my military history comment earlier on. Um, it's, I mean, it's not, bad, it's not a bad answer, by the way. It's a pretty good answer. Anything, anyone else want to go for it? Yeah. People? Did it in one word? That's good. It's pe people who can write stuff down, actually. Like, that's where history stops, is the line between history and, and um, archaeology, right, or anthropology. History is all about written records. So we're going to do a lot of warm-up before we get to written records. But one of the reasons why baptism is important in the history of Eastern Europe or Europe in general is that with baptism and Christianity comes written language. And with a written language comes the ability to make different kinds of interpretations where, history, where historians are comfortable. All right, I'm going to give this one more shot. What's history about? Don't you guys dream of like, isn't it like, like your dream? Like you're gonna come to Yale and a professor's gonna ask you what history's all about and you're gonna raise your hand and say something brilliant? Like isn't, like, isn't that what you guys dream about? Like this is your moment. Yeah, Jack. States and society. State and society? That's good, that's good, that's pretty good. Okay, so what I'm thinking about is something even more basic and dumb, which is um, change in continuity. Okay, so that you don't have to write that down. It's just it's a very fundamental thing that sometimes things change and sometimes they don't. And history is aware of both of them, right? And you're in, in history is aware since the, so historical unity is a non-historical concept because it's what it does is that it's a trick because historical doesn't mean historical. It means unchanging, right? Historical unity in that phrase means forever. It means eternal. Right? It doesn't actually mean historical, because historical would mean it changes. Right? Maybe there was some unity at some point, but if it's historical, then it would change, because that's what history is. History is change, as well as continuity. Um, so history is about change and continuity, which means it's about ends and beginnings. And it also, it's also about unpredictability. 
Okay, so as you might have gathered, this lecture is also because we're doing this, this big question, this, we're handling this big subject of war, and we're trying to do this big question of where nations come from. At the very beginning, I'm trying to do just a little bit about what history actually is, um, because we're going to need it. So one of the things, which is, since history is about beginnings and endings, it's also unpredictable. Right? It's about things that you couldn't expect. And that may seem counterintuitive because you probably think, well, okay, I don't, you probably don't because I know you're all very sophisticated, but someone in some other classroom might think history is about old dusty books and we know what's going to happen in the old dusty books. Right? But here's the thing, even if you read all the old dusty books that you wanted about the year 1439 and you became the world's leading expert on 1439, you still would not know what happened in 1440, right? That's the level you wouldn't have. That's the, that's the level of unpredictability of history, and it, it comes up to the present. You can read all. I mean, you could know everything you could possibly humanly know about 2021, but you wouldn't know what's going to happen in 2022, right? You just wouldn't. It's only afterwards that it all seems like it had to happen, right? Like up until February 24th, of course, Russia's not going to invade Ukraine. After February 24th, oh, of course, Russia was going to invade Ukraine. That's how our minds work, right? And history is there to remind us that actually we're wrong pretty much all the time, that things are not actually predictable, right? That what people expect to happen is generally what doesn't happen, and that novelty is an authentic thing, like that, 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 that there are new things which come about all the time. In our case, the new thing that we'll be thinking about the most is, um, is, 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 is nature. I mean, sorry, is the nation. Now, um, one of the things which, uh, which gets elided, and I've already mentioned this, um, and it's pretty important, in the notion that history is, a kind of is some kind of eternity or some kind of repetition. Like you may have heard the phrase, you may have heard the idea that um, that history repeats itself. I don't know about you guys. I hear it all the time because whenever I talk about the past, then people say, well, history is repeating itself because this thing is like this thing. But if history really, oops, I'm getting out of the camera view probably. I'm not used to doing this. I'm, um, the, 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 if, um, if history repeats itself, that would mean that nothing we do matters, right? If history literally repeated itself, then there would be no human agency. It's the same thing as saying, his, things never change. If things change according to a pattern, that also means no human agency, right? And so the notion that history is a cycle, right? Like there was a time when we were great, and now we have to make ourselves great again. Like the notion that there's a cycle, that there was a golden age, and then something went wrong, and then we correct it. That's also, that's also not historical. That's also a way of eliminating human agency, right? So history doesn't repeat. Um, it doesn't repeat. You learn things from history, which can then help you recognize other things. You might see some certain patterns, but, hist but, history, but history doesn't repeat. Okay, so, um, so the, thing, the thing which goes missing in these accounts, which I want us to get better at, at recognizing over the course of this class, and as we think about the nation, is, um, is, the, is the notion of human agency. Okay, not voluntarism, like not the idea that you can do whatever you want, but the notion of human agency. That you, history helps us to identify the structures as best we can, and then the better we understand the structures, the better we see what humans can and can't do, or could imagine that they can do within those structures, right? So when we, identify, when we do history, <clears throat> we're trying to, as it were, objectively understand the situation around a person, but we're also trying to subjectively understand what that person might have been thinking or trying to do, and we never give up on the second part, 
right? So to take the example of this baptism in 988, don't worry, we'll return to it over and over again. But when, when, when Valdemar got himself baptized, he might have been, he, we know he was not thinking about Russia and Ukraine a thousand years later. Like that we can be sure about. Um, we can be pretty sure he wasn't even thinking about Christianity because we know enough about his predicament to say what he was probably thinking about was geopolitics um, and what form of conversion would be best to preserve his own rule, right? And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try to explain how that all works out. But, but what, we, what we're always trying to do is to understand the situation around someone which is, so to speak, of an objective undertaking. But then we're also trying to get inside the individual actors and their own minds and recognize that they have a, they have a subjective appreciation of these. Of, and, and you can never quite do away with that tension between you know, what I'm calling very simply the objective and, um, and, <clears throat> and, and the subjective forms of history. Okay, so um, if... Um, if, uh, if, if, so we, we've already talked about many of the ways that this kind of myth of eternity is, is wrong. Um, another way that I wanted to talk about it is in terms of diversity or in terms of, of change. Um, if I talk, if I give you a myth, a myth of a golden age, I'm usually getting rid of diversity. I'm usually getting rid of all the interesting stuff, right? If I'm talking about how and this is, by the way, all myths of the golden age are pretty much structurally the same. Interestingly, it always turns out that we were the good guys, right? Like try to think of a myth of a golden age where the other guys were the good guys. Uh, it, if it's funnily, it all kind of comes down to the same. It's always, we were the good guys, we were innocent, and then the bad people came and they like polluted us or you know, they did something very bad. It's structurally always the same. And it doesn't even matter whether you're an empire or not. You can, you can be the most powerful empire in the world, the most powerful empire, in the in, in, most powerful country in the world, um, hint USA. And you can still come up with a story of how you were the victim and the other people came and they polluted you. But like all, the, the structure is always the same. And so when you, have a, when you have a story of which Putin's version of the baptism in Kiev is one example, you have a story about how everything was always static. Everything was pure, right? That's why the baptism, by the way, is so attractive. Like, it's not that Putin actually goes to church or like that the Russian church you know, really exists as such, but, it's the, the, but, the, but baptism is a notion of, it's a, it's a cleansing, right? It's a purifying, it's a starting again. And that's why, that's why it's such an attractive image in this story. The baptism allows us to forget all the things that happened before and, and present history or the past as this kind of clean unity where anything which was polluting came from the outside, right? And that is a way of getting rid of diversity or getting rid of the things which might, um, as historians or as students of history, we might actually find to be interesting. Um, where, you know, the, the, it gets rid of things coming from other places. It gets, rid of, it gets rid of origins. It gets rid of innovation. It gets rid of all of the interesting stuff. Like, for example, the alphabet, right? The alphabet might seem like something which is eternal. I mean, <clears throat> when was the last time you guys thought about the alphabet? All right, that's not the question that you were dreaming your professor was gonna ask you the first week of Yale. He's asking me about the alphabet, mom. I can't believe it. I studied so hard. Um, so the, the alphabet is a really interesting creation. It was actually only invented once, like a lot of things that we take for granted and then copied a bunch of times. The specific Cyrillic alphabet, which, um, which 
which came to Kiev after the baptism was invented by a couple of, we'll talk about this, a couple of Byzantine priests who were trying to convert not Kiev, but Moravia, not then, but a couple centuries before. And they had an interesting um, career and it wandered and ended up in Kiev. And then suddenly you have this alphabet. And then that Cyrillic alphabet can seem like a kind of eternal marker of like East and West or whatever, once it's established, but it's actually an innovation which came from the outside, right? Like for that matter, Christianity itself. So when you, when you focus on how things, or if you pretend that things are static, what you're doing is you're excluding all the diversity, all of the innovation, and all the things which came from the outside. Um, what we're gonna be trying to do in this class is make the opposite point, that what's interesting about Ukraine is that rather than being part of some, somebody else's myth of purity, right, um, is that Ukraine actually embodies in a very intense form most of the major themes of European history and some of the major themes of European history, of, of world history. Um, that what we're, what we're gonna try to be arguing is that as a result of Ukraine's geography, um, as a result of this north-south axis at the beginning and an east-west axis later on, all of the themes of, U of European history appear in Ukrainian history just in a slightly more interesting form, right? So the Vikings, for example. If you're interested in European history, you may be interested in the Vikings. The Vikings, let's face it, they're interesting, okay? So you have this mainstream of European development where the Franks start a state and the Vikings react to the Franks and they start raiding the Franks and they invent, they invent these boats and they, they, they travel all over the world, very cool. But maybe the single most lasting trace of the Viking age is Kiev. Right? The Vikings founded states, they knocked over states, they founded states all over the place. Normandy, for example. Normandy, as you might remember, invades England and establishes England in the form that we know it today. Vikings matter a lot. Um, but, you know, Norwegian democracy, it all has to do with the Vikings. But Kiev may be the single most interesting legacy of the Viking Age, maybe the most durable legacy of the Viking Age. When you look, when you look at pictures of wartime Kiev now, which you know, where San Sofia is still standing, thankfully, like that's a legacy of Viking civilization. That's a legacy of, of Vikings converting to, um, <clears throat> to, to Christianity. If you think about the history of the, the Reformation, right? Oh, the Reforma we all know the Reformation is a big theme of European history. Suddenly there are Protestants as well as Catholics and maybe there's a hundred years war and a third of the population of Germany is going to get wiped out and the printing press comes along and suddenly there can be disputations which seem to lead to a lot of violence. Um, this whole thing about the internet causing trouble so far is like nothing compared to the printing press. Like we may, we may get there, but like the printing press came along and that was, that was a mess. But in, in Ukraine, you have the Reformation, but it's not Catholics and Protestants. It's the Orthodox and the Greek Catholics and the, Catholic, and the Catholics and the Protestants and all kinds of Protestants. And you have a religious war in 1648, which is also a proto-national war and an anti-colonial war and something which is extremely interesting. So basically everything that happens in European history happens in Ukrainian history, just slightly more intensely and sometimes slightly earlier. And indeed one of the themes or one of the things that I hope you'll notice as we go along is that George Orwell said this, that the hardest thing to notice is what's right in front of your nose, right? Just 
I don't know, if this is your first week at Yale, like maybe like 50 years from now when you're an alum, you'd be like, my professor told me the hardest thing to notice is what's right in front of your nose. If you take that away, I'll also be happy. Um, but but, it, but it's, it's true, right? The, the things which are most intensely obvious are very often the things that are hardest to take on. And history, in a way, is actually like, oh, America's an empire? I mean, his, history is a way of picking up on the obvious because it gives it to you from a whole bunch of different angles at the same time and then maybe the obvious will eventually come 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 through right um so um so 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 the point is that ukraine is at the absolute center of a lot of things which we regard as central i mean i've given you the viking age and the reformation which may seem a little exotic it's absolutely at the central of the first world war it's absolutely at the center of the second world war it's absolutely at the center of stalinist terror it's absolutely at the center of the holocaust it's absolutely at the center of the collapse of the soviet union um it's at the center of major historical developments not just ancient and medieval but also very contemporary but the fact that it's precisely the fact that it's at the center of the development makes it hard to see and hard to notice. It's sometimes hard to direct your gaze at the thing which is most important, sometimes because where things are most important is also where things are darkest, right? And very, and very often, Ukraine is going to be a kind, um, a kind of heart of darkness. Who wrote Heart of Darkness, by the way? Where is he from? I'll give you one more try. You're guessing though, right? Yeah. So you're not wrong that he was from Poland, but it's a very interesting trajectory. Okay, so Heart of Darkness is a famous, famous book about the race for Africa. It's a remarkable novel. Conrad's a remarkable writer. Conrad is a Pole. How does he know about colonialism? Because he's from Ukraine, right? Um, there's a recent Polish history book about Ukraine, which is called Poland's Heart of Darkness, which of course the Poles really didn't in general like to hear, um, but it's a very valid point. In the, during the Renaissance period, as we'll see, Polish colonialism in Ukraine was incredibly intense. And that gives Conrad the background to understand the European race for Africa. And in turn, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism is basically one long riff on Joseph Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness. Right? So, and so it's not surprising that, that Origins, that, um, that, that that Arendt actually understands that Ukraine is important, just kind of closing, closing the loop here. But a heart of darkness is something which is hard to see, and, and, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant, right? That doesn't, so the thing, things get wiped out of the history that are precisely the things that, that, we, have, that we have to see. Okay, um, I'm getting towards the end of the main themes that I wanted to make sure we got, we got, int we got introduced here. So we've talked about what history is, we've talked about what, it, what a nation is, um, we've talked about the difference between history and, and myth. Um, I've mentioned this sort of trigger question of Ukraine exists why, or Ukraine exists how, which is, a, which is a lot trickier than it seems at the beginning. So if you're living through the 21st century, and I realize like this is the only century that you guys have lived through, which I find very troubling. Um, one of the, no, like, one, one of the, no, like if you're me, like think about this for a second, okay, if you're me, you guys never get older, right? Every September I show up and you're always the same age. That is really weird, right? It's, it's very strange. Um, and every year, I, every year I get older, which is very, you know, which is very, which is very troubling. Um, but if you're in the 21st century, there are these moments where you say, oh, look, Ukraine exists, like 2004, 
um, what Ukrainians now call uh, the Revolution of Dignity, or, or sorry, the, the Orange Revolution, 2014, the Revolution of Dignity, or 2022, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's very easy and tempting when Russia invades Ukraine and Ukraine resists to say, oh, look, now Ukraine exists. But that wouldn't be a very Ukrainian perspective, right? Um, the fact that you recognize something because someone else acts doesn't mean that they just came into existence. On the contrary, I think the argument probably runs better the other way. The fact that Ukrainians were able to resist the Russian invasion suggests that the nation or the civil society had already consolidated to a pretty impressive degree. Right? And the fact that we, and that would be my American we, but it was a general assumption, all thought that Ukraine would collapse in three days might say more about our misunderstanding of the place than it does about the place itself. And after you misunderstand it and you say, well, it doesn't really exist, it's going to collapse in three days, and then it doesn't collapse, what's your next move? Your next move in order to rescue your position is to say, oh, well, Ukraine must have just been created by the Russian invasion. Uh, which is something that if you've been following this war at all, you will have heard journalists and others say, well, you, Putin, and Putin united Ukraine with this invasion, right? And of course, it's true that there's a lot of solidarity and so on that wouldn't have happened without the war. But the idea that Putin created Ukraine by invading it is, is ludicrous, right? You can, you can invade lots of places. That doesn't mean that they start to exist as nations. That's not how history actually works. Um, so that itself, like that whole move that journalists then made to say, oh, well, Ukraine exists because Putin is just a way to keep talking about the thing which people are very comfortable talking about, which is Putin. Um, if, you're, no, if you're a writer in a democracy, you're very attracted to authoritarians. I don't know if you've noticed this trend, but there's a kind of seductive lure of the distant authoritarian. No, it's true. Like in the 20s and 30s, this, if you go back to the 20s and 30s and you read about the way Americans wrote about not just Stalin, but also Hitler, <clears throat> you'll see this tendency. If you're in a democracy, you're, very, you're, you're kind of tempted by this idea that, oh, there's somebody over there and like everything is orderly and they have a vision and this is kind of interesting and so on. We, fall, we go for that again and again and again. And with Putin, like even now, although it's much weaker now than it was before February, there's this idea that, oh, like he's like, it's, a, it, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of seductive. He's a strong man. And let's talk about Putin, right? Let's talk about Putin. And then saying, oh, Putin created Ukraine by invading is one more way of talking about Putin rather than talking about Ukraine. In other words, it's a kind of what's one more colonial move that you're making. Well, okay, we, they didn't exist, but if they do exist, it's the paradoxical result of a foreign dictator, right? Okay, so, um, so there are these triggering moments, but what I'm trying to suggest that these triggering moments should be triggers of our asking ourselves what actually happened, you know, as opposed to jumping to easy conclusions that are convenient with what, which, which are consistent with what we already, which, what we already think. Okay, so we've done history. We've done what history is. You guys feel like you know what history is now? Because I hope so, because we only have one lecture for this. We've talked, we've introduced a little bit um, the, um, the difference between, between history and myth. Um, there's, one more, there's one more theme, which I want to just introduce very quickly. And it's a 20th century theme, which I, wanna, which I want you to have in mind. The theme is genocide. And the reason it's a 20th century theme is that the 1948 definition of genocide assumes that there's such a thing as a people, right? So Rafał Lemkin, who is the lawyer who's educated in what's now Ukraine, by the way, Polish Jewish lawyer who's educated in the university um, in what's now Lviv, when he made up the word genocide, um, he's assuming the existence of a people, right? Because genocide is about the, the intentional destruction of a people. So it assumes that there is such thing as a people, right? What we might call a nation, 
or a society. Um, so it's a 20th century construction. I mean, genocide as the antipode of the creation of a nation, right? Um, we think of na nations are modern, and then the attempt to destroy a nation is also modern, right? Um, the, the theme of genocide is a, is, a, is a late theme, but I want you to keep it in mind because, because of this war and because of the way that genocide also asks questions about where nations come from. This war is a strangely genocidal war. It's strange in the sense that it's very rare for the authors of a war to actually say at the beginning that the aim of the war is the destruction of another people. That doesn't happen very often. Like the, that might be the aim, but for it to be announced openly as it has been in this war is pretty unusual, and that's the intent part of genocide. The practical part of genocide one can find very easily in the 100,000 dead in Mariupol, as it appears, unfortunately, um, in the three million Ukrainians deported, including a quarter million children, at least, who are to be forcibly assimilated into Russian culture, in the systematic campaign of rape and the murder of local elites in the territories that Russia controls, and maybe you know more banally, but I think also very importantly, in the systematic attempt to destroy publishing houses, libraries, and archives, um, which are the way, of course, that nations or societies or people remember themselves. So there is a genocidal aspect to this war, and I want you, I want this, you keep this in mind as a theme because this concept of genocide, though it's a modern concept, it also points us backwards towards other questions which we're going to be thinking about, which is which have to do with colonialism and which have to do with why people recognize or do not recognize other people. Why what what were the if we're going to if we're going to ask the positive question, a Ukrainian a Ukrainian nation exists how? Which I think is a really interesting question, not just about Ukraine. A Ukrainian nation exists, how is that possible? The converse question is what were the things which were thrown up along the way and why, right? So why was there particularly Ukrainian famine in 1933 in the Soviet Union? Um, why that? Why did Hitler particularly think that Ukraine would be a good site of Lebensraum? Why in the 1970s was Bre were Brezhnevian assimilation policies uh, particularly applied to Ukraine, right? What is it about this place which has put it at the center of so much colonial pressure over the centuries and the decades? I don't want you to apply the word genocide to things that happened before there's a nation. That's not my point. My point, though, is that I wanted to introduce some concepts, which are what is history, what is, what is a nation, and then the kind of pendant or counterpart to what is a nation is what is genocide. What are the things which lead to nation, if there are things that lead to nation destruction, what are the things, which, sorry, to nation creation, what are the things that lead to nation destruction? What are the deeper impulses? Not just a war which is happening now, or a famine which happened then, or a terror which happened some other time, but what are some of the deeper forces which push us in that direction? So it's, it, the, Ukraine is a heart of darkness in that sense, right? It's a, it's a way to collect those kinds of events as well. They're not the only things we're gonna be talking about, but the concept of genocide can help us to remember that this is an important part of the history that we're gonna be investigating. Okay, so much for introductions. Thank you all for being here, and I hope to see you again next week. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.